There's nothing we can do about the collective stupidity of government other than figure out how to exploit it. This is an economy of one. Your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy. The market no longer is the invisible hand of mutual gain, but the choking grip of political self-interest. Liberty is not given. It must be taken. Let's take it back together today. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An economy of one with Gary Rathman, CEO of Private Wealth Consultants and your free market voice of the U.S. This is our country. Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. Our website, aneconomyofone.com, aneconomyofone.com, as is our Facebook. I'm going to skip over the usual preliminary discussion and go right to my first guest. Joining me now is Wayne Cruz. He's the Vice President for Policy at Competitive Enterprise Institute. He's author of the yearly report, 10,000 Commandments, an annual snapshot of the federal regulatory state. And he co-authored This Liberal Congress Went to Market, a bipartisan policy agenda for the 110th Congress and Communications Without Commissions, a national plan for reforming telecom regulation. Wayne, welcome to An Economy of One. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. We've had a new president now for about a week. week. And, you know, from your expertise, I'll give you a real broad question and then we'll drill down a little bit. But the first seven days, six, seven, eight days here of the first hundred, what are you thinking? Well, if uh, Barack Obama had a pen and phone, Donald Trump has a meat act, doesn't he? <laughs> he came right out the bat with a, with a series of executive orders. And you know his broader agenda is, of course, Obamacare, mm-hmm. tax and budget, doing tax reform, and doing trade policy. But he, unlike um, we've seen in a very, very long time, has taken a big interest in addressing the regulatory state, which has gotten out of control, too. You know, we may have a $19, billion, $19 trillion federal debt, but the regulatory enterprise every year is something that is very – it's getting to the point where if you think about a $4 trillion a year spending budget, the regulatory state costs half that much. Wow. So if you talk about reforming taxes, reforming tor- corporate taxes, which are around $300 billion or so, mm-hmm. regulations cost a lot more than that. And Trump is coming out of the bat by saying he's going to – Get rid of two regulations for every new one that comes in. Mm-hmm. The very first memorandum that came out of the Trump administration from Reince Priebus put a freeze on all of the regulations that were in play that are in place now that coming from that had come out of the Obama administration, and that was something uh, that Donald Trump had said back during his Detroit Economic Club speech back in August. He said he was going to put a freeze on regulations. And that gives a good chance to sort of weed things out and then tee up doing some broader regulatory reform, which I think we'll see this year. You know, I want to step back just a minute because Mm -hmm. it's kind of confusing for me. I know it's confusing for some of our listeners, but so much of the regulations you're talking about are coming out of agencies motivated maybe by pieces of legislation or executive orders or whatever. But the people making these regulations that we have to live by are not elected. They're not accountable. Talk a little bit about where these regulations come from and why isn't Congress being responsible for this? Yeah, this has been an issue for a really long time. Last year, uh, Paul Ryan put out a series of task force reports kind of laying out 
a Republican agenda. And at that time, he was doing it, I think, to distinguish himself from Trump. This was still during the primary season, and you still had a field of primary candidates. But he put out task force reports on Obamacare and welfare, but he also put them out on what you're talking about, the regulatory enterprise and the whole question of Article One and separation of powers and checks and balances. And he said, he admitted, the Republicans admitted that Congress had delegated way too much power to agencies to issue these rules. So it's bad enough that you have a piece of legislation, say, like Obamacare, that imposes vast costs and causes companies to make, have, have part-time employees only, things of that sort, or the costs of something like the Dodd-Frank law. But Congress has delegated so much power to agencies that they essentially do, just as you said, they issue regulation after regulation in far greater quantity than Congress does laws. Congress did about 200 laws last year, but meanwhile, on December 31st, there were 3,800 regulations that had come out of the Obama administration. So you're talking about, I, I jokingly call it the unconstitutionality index, but you had a multiple of 18 regulations for every law in terms of flow. So I think there's an attitude in Congress now to try to put a stop to it. They weren't able to do it under the Obama administration. They did pass something called the RAINS Act, and in fact they've done it again for this Congress. RAINS says that for every regulation, major regulation that comes out of the agencies, Congress has to approve it before it's effective on the public. Now, that bill is going to have trouble in the Senate, at least in the 115th Congress. Things could change after 2018. Mm -hmm. But that is the main bill in play that would say to Congress, whoa, you, you've delegated too much power. You've got to take this responsibility back. You're the elected representative. The agencies are unelected. They don't have accountability like you do. The problem with all that delegation is you've got members who can say in front of the Sierra Club or NRDC, I voted for the Clean Air Act amendments, but they can walk across the street to the Chamber of Commerce and say the EPA is out of control. Right. All this delegation lets them avoid responsibility for what happens, and that's what's got to change. Now, to lay the cynicism on the table, is Congress willing to delegate this just so they can talk to those two groups and say the opposite so it can't be brought up to you them in their re-election, you know? I mean, you, you, you touched on a very, very important point. It's a, it's a problem of representative democracy that you, you, you make a lot of promises to get elected. Mm -hmm. And one thing that, it, that delegation does do is Congress then frees up its time to turn around and, and do an about-face and then start making a new set of promises which, which then it can delegate responsibility for, and then turn around again. So there's a pressure in you know, there, in the old, in the theory of the of, of uh, fiscal budgeting. You know, there's theories of why deficits grow, and you can think of this kind of as a regulatory deficit too, or regulatory output. But I think Congress, at least in the short term, of the the rules that are, that Barack Obama put out in the latter part of the year. The ones that are within 60 days of Barack Obama's uh, leaving office have are subject to something called the Congressional Review Act. Congress can do resolutions of disapproval on those, and Trump would likely sign them. So they can get a, rid of a few rules that way, 
And then Trump's moratorium gives the opportunity to look at everything that's in the pipeline Mm -hmm. and try to weed some of that out and make it more sensible. But they'll need to do some broader reform, too. So far, nothing is getting at the point you make that Congress needs to be responsible for what the agencies put out. There's some things that give better oversight, that give citizens a little more input into the notice and comment process. But the point you raise is, I think, probably one of the most important uh, issues in terms of thinking about the regulatory administrative state. Once again, I I, I have a real cynical bone in my head, but Mm -hmm. I, I go clear back to 1913 and the Federal Reserve. I figured Congress did that so they wouldn't have to be held accountable for monetary policy. Right, right, And right. Uh, I understand the bankers and the Rothschilds and all that kind of stuff, Paul Wahlberg and all those guys back then. But, you know, it had to be approved by Congress, and I think they like having Yellen take all the heat and not having to be held accountable they, for that. You know? They don't have to take the heat themselves. And That's right. Watch and see if you have, uh, if you hear about um, audit the Fed bills that have been promoted by Rand Paul and things like that. But some things just disappear. You know, yep. you, you'd hear about the, the, the audit the Fed bill, then it disappeared. It's not being talked about now. You would hear Rand Paul talk about getting rid of the TSA at the airports, you know, the thousands standing around, you know, or at least take away their uniforms or at yeah. least have normal, humane uh, security check-ins. And, um, you know, he stopped talking about that. I have, you know, I've, I've wondered sometimes if we did have a Republican majority, if they would still avoid doing the Reins Act and would just do other, just try to shift the focus to other regulatory reforms. Because it's true, they don't want to take on this responsibility, but it points to the fact that the federal government is just too darn big and it's trying to do too many things. And right now we're in a rough spot because the FCC is, has issued huge new rules to regulate the Internet. The Department of Transportation and the FAA are both trying to regulate drones and driverless cars without congressional authority to do that. And so they're putting, they're putting the agencies out in front of all the new technologies and things. You know, we always say that you know, most of the world's wealth hasn't been created yet. Most of the jobs haven't been created yet. But we've got to keep the, the regulatory state's hands off of the future. That's a big part of what we need to do. And I hope that the Republicans this year will have the vocabulary for that and be able to defend free enterprise and free markets and laissez-faire and argue against the notion that, you know, free markets mean companies get to run wild. It's just not true. Your choice is always political discipline or is competitive discipline going to do better? Political discipline can do some pretty bad things. I joke sometimes, you know, I don't know of any tainted meat that wasn't approved by the USDA. Just because you have regulation doesn't mean you're actually regulating. You may be doing something else. Well, and, and it always bothers me because, like this season, when Donald Trump becomes president, he's a new animal coming to Washington. Mm-hmm. He's got the meat axe, and he's not really concerned with what people say about him or what they think of him. He's going to do what right. he wants to do and what he said he's going to do. And Congress says, "Okay, now, now we got Donald Trump as president. Now we'll rein ourselves in. Now we'll start right. doing what we should have been doing the last fifty years." And right. and it just bothers me that the electorate buys it every time. Yeah, me, me too. I, I was. We were always urging during the Obama administration <clears throat> that Congress and the Senate pass. The, the major reg reform bills, the major government spending bills, things of that sort, mm-hmm. and just to make Obama veto them, create an inventory of great yeah. bills that the president vetoed and use that at campaign time. But, um, you know, they, they didn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and they, qu- they even, they even uh, shied away from defunding programs and defunding Obamacare because they were worried about a government shutdown. But right. when the government shutdown happened, 
most of it didn't shut down. Right. But the other thing is Republicans weren't blamed for it. They ended up winning the elections anyway. Yeah. And they, so it was just, you know, that that bugged me kind of kind of parallel to what you're talking about. Wayne, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. This has been a real, been my pleasure. real treat for me, and I hope we can tap you on the shoulder again soon. Sure will. Thank you for having me. Have a great afternoon. Thank you. You also. Coming up next, we're hearing a lot about repealing Obamacare. We'll talk about that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, one of the signature campaign promises under Donald Trump, now President Trump, was repealing Obamacare. That was the big thing. We're going to repeal it and we're going to fix the health care system. Now, that's easier said than done. And we've talked about that for a couple of weeks now as to what he can do, what Congress is likely to do that kind of stuff. But there's a couple main narratives out there I do want to touch on. And one of those is 18 million people could lose their coverage after Obamacare's repeal. 18 million people. Well, would the headline have as much impact if it said uh, maybe one or two million people could lose their coverage after Obamacare? Would the headline have as much impact if it said probably nobody's going to lose their health care after Obamacare repeal? Well, of course not. So they come out with this number of 18 million. Well, we've heard 18 million. We've heard 20. We've heard 22. We've heard all kinds of numbers. The bottom line is out of the 18 million that the Congressional Budget Office talks about, at least 16 million of those went on Medicaid. So the Obamacare stuff, I don't don't know what else to call it, the Obamacare coverage of people, the vast majority of that was Medicaid. It wasn't private insurance. It wasn't private insurance through the exchanges. None of that. So the people on Medicaid... Uh, are not going to lose coverage. That's a myth. That's a scare tactic. And it's just not going to happen. Now, Congress could, should make some changes on how the states work with Medicaid, the flexibility, how it's run, who's eligible, that kind of stuff. But all of that can be done at a easier pace, shall we say. It's not an emergency, urgent need to change like many of the other provisions around Obamacare. If they got rid of the individual mandate, got rid of some of the employer mandates, got rid of the penalties for not having coverage, that kind of stuff, those would be, once again, easy, quick fixes. could be executive order. It could be legislative. But it would get us a long ways down the path to fixing this. We can fix Medicaid and Medicare later. So we can, we can take our time on that. 
So the first headlines you read where it says 18 million people could lose coverage, that's just not going to happen. Likelihood is nobody's going to lose coverage. Will it change? Maybe, hopefully. But it's not going to reverse all those people. We're not going to throw them all off Medicaid like the progressives and liberals would have you to believe. The other thing, the big issue, and I think this is easily solvable, is pre-existing conditions. One of the dilemmas, one of the moral dilemmas with Obamacare is you can wait until you get sick and then sign up and can't be turned down. Well, there's just no way an insurance company can hedge or pool that risk. So we need something that allows people with pre-existing conditions to get coverage. Now, I know that it's not the person's fault that they have a pre-existing condition, but you know what? It's not my fault either. Why should the taxpayers have to pay for that? For years and years and years, decades, private insurance companies have dealt with the pre-existing condition problem. And by being able to pool that risk, by excluding that risk for a year or two, by giving an open enrollment once a year so people with pre-existing conditions can get coverage like the HMOs, that kind of stuff, all of that is solvable. But they make it sound like we're going to throw them out on the street, they're going to lose all their wealth, and they're going to live in a box on the sidewalk. Well, that's just not the case. One of the good things that President Trump is doing, and that is putting the mainstream media in their place. He's calling them to task when they distort the news, when they imply or infer things that are not true. Uh, I'm not going to get into the use of fake news because I think that has become cliche very, very quickly. But... We need to look at the reality of the situation and deal with the issues in a practical way. Government is not the solution. Health insurance, health coverage is not a right. It's not a right. You do not have a right to health care. You do not have a right to health insurance. Now, there are laws you can't be turned down for treatment, but to say that health insurance is a right is just wrong. Coming up next, I'll be speaking with Larry Schweikert. He's the author of the new book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Presidents. Gary Rathbun, An Economy of One. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Larry Schweikart. He's an author and columnist. He's got best-selling books out there, including Seven Events That Made America, America, 48 Liberal Lies About American History, and his number one New York Times bestseller with Mike Allen, A Patriot's History of the United States. One of my favorite books he wrote was uh, The American Entrepreneur, The Fascinating Stories of the People Who Define Business, 
in the United States, and most recently, the Politically Incorrect Guide to the Presidents. He's a retired professor of history at the University of Dayton, just down the road. Larry, welcome to An Economy of One. Read through your book, The uh, Politically Incorrect Guide to the Presidents, Part 1, Washington to Taft. Very readable, very fascinated uh, by that. One of the things that got me, and you're a history guy. I mean, you've written a lot of books about history. And like I said, one of my favorites was The American Entrepreneur. So I really appreciate you writing that. But one of the things in reading through the, the, the book on the presidents and some of my other reading, it's fascinating how history is shaped seemingly by small, insignificant, almost coincidental events and circumstances. And, uh, for example, like uh, who gets chosen the, the vice president and, and that kind of stuff. What's the oddest fact in your research on the presidents that had the largest impact on America looking back over history? Well, probably, I mean, you you probably have to go with um, Teddy Roosevelt being named as McKinley's vice president. You know, Roosevelt uh, was a pain in the neck. Right. Uh, he was he was a great guy in so many ways. I'm sure you or I would be happy to share a foxhole with him. You know, he loved America, but he had a, he had some problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had never run a business, I, and I, I attribute his his uh, progressivism to the fact that he never ran a business. Uh, the dude ranch, is, his ranch was really not a business. He had other people run that for him. And so it wasn't a situation where he was meeting a payroll and, you know, doing all that sort of stuff. Right. And I think if he had done all that, that um, it would have been very different. I don't think he would have had many of the progressive ideas that he had. So having McKinley name him, as a vice president, when the goal was to get him out of the way, what they were trying to do was right. get this right. guy out of a line of fire because he, he's an up and comer. He's going to cause problems. Let's just put him someplace where he won't cause problems. And then, of course, McKinley gets shot up in Buffalo, and <laughs> and Teddy Roosevelt is president. So that's mm-hmm. uh, you know that's an issue. <laughs> well, and and you know I just read the book. Um, oh, I forget the title. I think it's called Teddy the Great. Or something like that, where they talked Theodore about Rex. Theodore Rex. Theodore Rex. Yeah, that's it. And you know, he had a heck of an approval rating uh, when he left office, like eighty-eight percent or something like that. Sure. Or the people wanted him to run again. And and I said a few weeks ago, in in reading the book and reading some of his stories, I mean, he would say whatever's on his mind, and then he'd apologize later. And it just right. reminded me of President-elect Trump uh, when I was reading the book. Now, President Trump. Right. And uh, there is some similarities there other than you're absolutely right. I mean, at least Trump uh, had a bottom line, had to, has had to make a payroll a couple times in his life. Well, you know, that is interesting that when when we were debating Trump going into the primary season and, and many people on the uh, Republican side were saying, well, you know, he's never served in the military and he's never run for office and no other president has ever done that, has ever gotten anywhere without that experience. And I thought, well, that's true. But also, he's the only American president who really has any widespread business experience. If you want to exclude agriculture, obviously many of the early presidents had plantations and and new agriculture. Washington, of of course, was probably the richest man ever to serve in the office because of his plantation. If you exclude that and the fact that two presidents – 
um, were failures in business. And that would be um, uh, Harry Truman, who's outside of my volume, and Ulysses Grant. Um, so, you know, uh, Trump, he didn't have political experience, he didn't have military experience, but he had some experience that nobody else had, which was very successful business experience. Well, and, and I think looking back, and once again, this is outside the scope of your your presidential book, but uh, I remember the early 90s, uh, that was Ross Perot's big appeal right. was he was a businessman and he, he'd always show you charts. Remember those mountain charts he showed us on everything? Let me, let me you know? tell you, Larry. Look, look here, Larry. Look, we just got to yeah. get under the hood. Remember that? <laughs> right. Just got to get under the hood. The problem with Perot is once he got under the hood, he couldn't tell you what he was going to do when he was under the hood. <laughs> right. and, and, and I made this same point about Trump. And it's okay we talk about Trump because I have a, another book coming out here in two weeks called How Trump Won. It's one of those right. veins of an author to have two books out at the same time. But nevertheless, <laughs> the thing about Perot was that he couldn't ever give you anything beyond we got to get under the hood and fix it. Right. And right. Um, Trump very clearly could. He had – uh, some very detailed plans. They weren't overly detailed, which I think some of the other Republican candidates had overly detailed plans. Mm-hmm. People don't need to know all 50 steps and how you're going to get someplace. They just need to know that y- you have in mind how you're going to get from A to Z. Yeah. One of the old adages my dad always used to tell me was, tell people what time it is. They don't need to know how the watch works. You know. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty. Well, here's another one. When you were asking about the the quirks, you know, and, and uh, very few people know this, uh, we had a President die in office, William uh, Henry Harrison, right. gave the longest inaugural speech ever, almost two hours, caught pneumonia, died, and, and his vice president, John Tyler, came in and um, caused so many hackles, raised so many hackles that he really wasn't going to get reelected. The next president up, James K. Polk, was inspecting the USS Princeton, and he went below decks to to look at something below decks just as they touched off the Princeton's main gun, and it blew up, killed half the people on the deck, including uh, his secretary of war, and had... Had Polk been on there, we would have had two presidents dead in less than a three-year time period. <laughs> See, and that, that's what I mean by just seemingly inconsequential things. And... Well, you know, you, you like the entrepreneur book, and I'll give you – I'm not supposed to talk about this, but, hey, we're going to talk about good stuff. Right. Uh, I'll give you an example from the entrepreneur book, and, and that's Elisha Otis who invented the elevator, mm-hmm. was literally packed and on his way to California to go to the gold rush because he'd been such a failure when his brother wired him from across town, sent a messenger and said, I've got a problem with this lift. Help me solve this problem. And Elisha Otis went over and came up with the idea of a safety break, which completely changed elevators in America. And it really made possible um, skyscrapers. Yeah. So these little quirks, uh, you know, affect us in all sorts of ways. It's absolutely fascinating in your research because you go from Washington to Taft, and right. from what I have read and the research I've done, there's a real difference in attitude that has evolved from, you know, the early men that, that were president to presidents of today. In your words, what's the difference in the attitude of those men? Well, I think without question, well into the early 20th century, maybe well past Taft, the notion was that that 
you were called to serve in the presidency, and then you left, and it wasn't the be-all and end-all of your life. For example, Martin Van Buren served as a in the House of Representatives after he was president. Andrew Johnson served in the U.S. Senate after he was president. Uh, most of the men at some point or another expressed the desire. All they wanted to do is go home, go back to their plantation, their, their farms, uh, their homes, you know, that – Uh, You don't get the sense, as you do from, for example, someone like Hillary Clinton, that her entire life has been spent running for this office. And and that if you don't win this office, that somehow your your life is an abysmal failure, you know. And and so you got the sense that they all believed that they were called to do a short service and then get the hell home. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and almost reluctantly. I mean, Washington was yes. somewhat reluctant to even take the job, wasn't he? Washington uh, was, of course, elected unanimously, so it's hard to say no to that. Right. He He didn't want to have to stay for a second term, but he honestly believed that if he didn't stay, the republic was in peril. He thought that we were still too young to just turn it over to another election, even to it might be John Adams, that he was needed for stability. And then he said, after that, I am definitely stepping down because the last thing he wanted to do was die in office and have John Adams, in essence, inherit the presidency without a real genuine election. Yeah. And and so everything Washington did, and I make this point throughout the book, everything he did was done with an eye toward what will history say? How will my successors deal with this situation? What precedent am I setting for those who come after? You know, I, I found one other thing fascinating. I'm, I'm right now just finishing up Brett Baer's new book, Three Days in January, uh, right. talking about President Eisenhower and his speech on his way out of the office. And I find it interesting that traditionally back then, and I was born in the 50s, so it it pains me to say back then, but uh, when the president became the ex-president, they got on a train and went home. I mean, it, it, it wasn't, you know, 50 Secret Service people go with him and they get the compound and, and their, their, their real financial life starts. They went home. And uh, if I remember right, Truman didn't even have a house unless he inherited one from his mom or something. Well, think of Ulysses Grant. Ulysses Grant was nearly broke uh, as as he was leaving the presidency. And, in fact, he uh, made a heroic effort to write his war memoirs, uh, which generally people generally say these are, are among the best military mm-hmm. memoirs ever written and and he did so so his wife would have something to to live on when he was gone so mm-hmm. it's quite different than the people who today uh you know retire with not just the secret service agents but they they seem to uh retire with book contracts yeah. and and just yeah. uh, incredible lavish lifestyles that uh, really weren't around before the turn of the century i do have to say one thing uh, larry this is the first we've met so don't don't take this as a, a real uh, indictment on my personality, but I'm a book nut, and I do have a copy of Ulysses S. Grant's book signed, yes. signed by him. 
And, yeah. uh, I'm very oh my excited. gosh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm very excited about that. Well, Larry, this has been a real treat and, uh, loved your book, the politically incorrect guide to the presidents and, um, looking forward. I got the, uh, I guess I can say this on air. I got the digital copy of, uh, of your next book, how Trump won. And, yeah. uh, it comes out, uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, February 27th, right. February 27th. Digital's out now, right. Yeah. And, uh, I'm going to have my producer give you a call and, uh, we'll talk about that book in, uh, in a few weeks when it comes out, if that's okay. Terrific. That's great. I appreciate your time, uh, this evening. Like I said, it's been a real treat. You do great work and, uh, look forward to talking to you again. Good. Thank you, Gary. Coming up next, one of the big issues that everybody's talking about, and that is tariffs, border tax, and international trade. We'll take a look at that from a historical perspective next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, a lot of discussion during the campaign from uh, candidate Trump, a lot of discussion from President-elect Trump, and now a lot of discussion and action from President Trump has to do with American jobs and American manufacturing. And I wanted to touch on this a little bit because... He's very clear in wanting to penalize companies for manufacturing things outside the United States and bringing them into the United States for us to consume. Now, I walk a sometimes confusing bubble for people because I understand free trade, I understand global economics, and I understand that companies should be able to have things manufactured anywhere in the world they want. But I also understand the value of having jobs and manufacturing here in the United States. And I shop American-made. I look for everything I buy, I look for where it's made. And I want to buy American partly, partly because I want to support American companies and American jobs. But more so, I want to buy American because I truly believe down in my soul that it's the best made stuff in the world. And I don't mind paying a little bit more for American made quality. Now, I don't want to sound too arrogant about that because I can afford to pay a little bit more and some people can't. And I understand that. And you got to shop price and you got to watch those dollars and get the most bang for the buck for your family that you can. I understand that. But what President Trump is talking about is what's uh, known in economics as mercantilism. Mercantilism is an economic practice or theory, if you will. It was dominant in, in Europe, Western Europe, from the 16th century forward. And it's a form of economic nationalism where they goal is to enrich and empower the nation and state to the maximum degree by acquiring and retaining as much economic activity as possible within a country's borders. 
So what they do is they, they want everything that a population consumes to be made in that country. So they impose high tariffs on importing finished goods and low or no taxes on the importation of raw materials because they want it made in that country. They'll impose low or no taxes on the export of finished goods and put high taxes or tariffs on the exportation of raw materials. They want to keep the stuff there. And, of course, they seek new markets for domestic manufactured products to increase the demand for those products. Now, it's called mercantilism, and, and it's it's been around for a long time. And in the old days, countries settled up their trade surpluses or trade deficits with precious metals, gold and silver. So if you exported a lot of stuff, your gold and silver reserves would increase significantly. If you imported a lot of stuff, uh, your gold and silver would decrease. And, you know, today, because of the world economy and the way transportation is, it's less relevant. But in those days, if you had trade barriers that were between adjoining countries, you can have a problem because it applied to everything, including food and everything else. So in the old days, not so much today, but in the old days, a strict mercantilist policy could easily lead to war because a country needs what a country needs. And if you're restricting it to them, Somebody's going to reach a point sometime where they say, okay, heck with it. We'll just go take it. We'll just take it. We're not going to worry about trade or trade barriers. We're just going to kill you and take your stuff. Now, today, trade barriers or tariffs, taxes, border taxes, rarely lead to armed conflict. But what you have to remember is whatever... President Trump puts on for tariffs and border taxes and that kind of stuff. Two things. One, that's going to filter right down to your pocketbook and my pocketbook. You and I are going to be the ones paying for it. And secondly, whatever countries that we put trade barriers on or tariffs on, they're going to do the same thing to us. So the net result will simply be a lot more expense to you and I. Now, we've talked about trade deficits in the past and how meaningless they are. But these kind of policies, if President Trump can get them through, will make those trade deficits or surpluses a lot more meaningful and a lot more impactful. So just keep in mind... You can't have your cake and eat it too. Whatever tariff you put on somebody else, they're going to put on us, and you and I are the only ones going to be paying for it. Governments don't pay for it. Companies don't pay for it. You and I pay for it. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. 
The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 